We are now relying on family caregivers to provide a huge amount of care for our loved ones. And it's important that they be part of that care system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. According to recent results from the ALS Focus Caregiver Survey, 68% of respondents reported that they spend more than 30 hours each week providing care. Asked to name their top concerns, 44% of respondents cited depression, 52% cited worries about the future, and 56% cited the lack of time to relax or engage in self-care. Respondents to that survey were also asked to name the programs that they most rely on to support their caregiving. 53% of caregivers said they benefit from home visits from nurses, occupational therapists, or physical therapists, from ALS equipment loan programs, and multidisciplinary care clinics. 40% of caregivers benefit from palliative or hospice care services, 38% support groups for ALS caregivers, 34% from training on general caregiving, and 29% from training on feeding tubes. This, of course, is important as we are in the midst of Family Caregivers Month. And joining me this week to help unpack some of this data and to explore ways that we can support caregivers is my guest co-host, Ken Pavis, a hairstylist for the stars, an entrepreneur who is also a caregiver to his mother, Helen. Ken, thanks so much for joining me here. Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. I think it's an incredibly important topic and it's an honor to be here with you today. Yeah, well, well, the honor is all mine. I have the benefit of, of being able to capture and share so many great stories from the community. And before I get into your experience as a caregiver, can you tell us a little bit about your mom? I know there's a blog about you or a bio about you on Oprah.com says that she has been your lifelong muse. So tell us a little bit about her. My mom is by everything. And she has always been the strongest, most supportive. Um, you know, my mom worked three jobs you know, an auto factory cleaning houses, planting flowers in a field, still had time to coach my T-ball team and help me build my first car. She was Wonder Woman. She was, you know, the ultimate um, mother and just role model in every way, shape and form. And she was four foot 11, is four foot 11 um, and just mighty, small and mighty and the kindest, most considerate person that you'll ever meet and, and raised, um, you know, three boys to consider other people and to be aware of other people and to not feel invisible and all of those types of things when many times that was her experience. Um, but just the most loving, unbelievable woman and my best friend uh, and again, my, my everything. So yes, and my muse, of course. My mom has traveled around the world with me as my model uh, for all my products uh, that I've ever had, but been on the Oprah show with me and as well as um, you know, all of my friends houses. And I always say that everybody likes my mom more than they like me. If it wasn't for my mom, nobody would care about me. Um, my mom's the, the best, the best. It's so great to hear the connection that you clearly have with her. Uh, you know, obviously, because of ALS, you are now thrust into the role of, of, of caregiver for her. The date on caregiving can tell us something about the stress that family caregivers are under. How does that picture of, of the data, how does that compare with, with your reality as you move into the role as caregiver? Um, you know, it, it, it is definitely in line with my feelings and what I'm experiencing, you know, as a caregiver. It's been um, since uh, it's been about 
eight months now, uh, a little bit longer, that I've been assumed the role of full caregiver um, for her. So, so that may change as we move forward. But you know, my main concern, you know, I've, I've traveled for work all the time. It would be no surprise for me to travel 260 days a year for work globally and, and all that sort of pace and all of that kind of stuff and long days and hours I'm, I'm kind of used to. So for me, more so than anything, we don't have care here at the house. You know, when we, I first brought my mom back home, you know, we had, we started off with hospice care and then COVID, you know, set in and my mom had had COVID previously. So I limited the amount of people that I wanted coming in because right. she's so compromised. So I decided that I would take everything on myself. And I really wanted Jeremy to see and understand. And I spent so much time with my mom before caring for her as well. But I really wanted to understand more what she was going through. My mom is no longer able to speak. So she communicates just by opening and closing her eyes. For me, if I'm ever to leave her in the care of somebody else, I want them to know the right questions to ask for comfort for everything that she could possibly need. So for me at the moment, the biggest worry and concern is for her, for her comfort, for her pain, for all of those things, because she can't communicate orally. And my mom and I, like I said, if we've traveled the world, we've been around the world so many times together, up late nights. We, you know, before my mom you know, had ALS, we would... I was visiting the house, we would go to Myers at midnight and grab paint and decide to paint the dining room. Like that, that's you no, know, so me and my mom being up around the clock is not a thing, you know? Um, so I get in bed with her, we watch TV, you know, she likes Wheel of Fortune, Family Feud, all those things. So I, I'm not yet really feeling that need for myself yet because I am always kind of going. I'm just trying to navigate her needs the best that I can. And, as I said in the beginning, you know, she did everything for me. So for me to not try and do everything I can for her, I think would, you know, wouldn't be right. So, and plus I enjoy her. She's my best friend. We have the, I mean, I mean, we literally laugh all the time and I can see her do her kind of giggle now. So, you know, but I, I but I see the data that you mentioned in the beginning of this, I can see that clearly 100% people that have doing it, been experiencing it, doing it longer than I have, people that have lived with this longer than we have. I can absolutely understand those feelings and, and those thoughts of, uh, you know, kind of needing time away or time for self-care. With that being said, you know, the, the data suggests, you know, caregiving can be essentially a full-time job, um, an uncompensated full-time job. And you, we hear from caregivers who talk about like career interruption, you know, or, yeah. or how are we juggling career with this other full-time job of providing care, which, which caregivers are, are absolutely clear about. They do out of love. Yeah. They, they get meaning out of providing care for their loved one, um, but then also lack of time to devote to hobbies. Obviously, Ken, you're a creative person. Talk to us a little bit about kind of pushing pause on some of these other aspects of who, who you are um, so that you can yeah. focus more time and energy toward being a caregiver. Yeah, I appreciate, you know, everything that you mentioned. You know, when my mom came, when I moved her back home, my mom had a stage four bed wound. And when you talk about the full-time job of it, we immediately, that's how we started. And I had a friend who was a charge nurse that guided me on how to really heal that. And when I showed it to some of the medical advisors that we were working with at the time, they said it's, it may be impossible to heal. And it was an every two to three hour shift 
and wound change of dressing that my friends, you know, would say to me, it's like having a newborn. I don't have any sympathy for you. Keep it going. You have to be up at one, four, seven, and then keep it going, you know, around the clock and do those changes. So I've experienced what that full-time job is like. And, and I think that maybe the first seven months that I was doing this, I didn't work. Um, I wasn't able to leave her in the care of anybody else. So I do know what that was like. And, you know, I had to say no to jobs that I've been doing for years or to clients who've been incredibly loyal to me for years. But everybody was really understanding that my mom took priority. But I do understand that it is difficult for some people to be able to say no. And I understand that some people can't say no to going to work. So it's an incredible, had my clients not been supportive and understanding, and as I mentioned earlier, loved my mom so much, I could be without a, a career or a job that I've worked, you know, nearly 30 years to accomplish because I had to dedicate all that time to my mom, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and then as we got into a rhythm here uh, with my mom and I have an incredible nephew, Christopher, and his daughter, Abigail, my goddaughter, who have now a mirroring set of equipment at their house. So they have the same hospital bed. And you know, I'm able to actually take my mom to their house, which is rather close. Um, and I know that she's in great care so I can actually start traveling for work again. I had asked my mom when some of the work came in and, and my nephew had offered to take my mom when I, when I, when I go away, I said to my mom, mom, if you want me to go to work, close your eyes. She closed her eyes real fast and hard. So I don't know if it was that she's tired of me <laughs> or she's just wanting me to go to work. I, I, I'm sure it's, uh, you know, as she was a big part of my career, I know she wanted me to go to work. But so that's been an amazing luxury when you ask about who we lean to. You know, I, up until all of this happened, we did everything kind of ourselves. And it was something that I've spoken to, you know, Morgan Roth about is that for so many years, you know, we got the diagnosis the day after my, a few days after my dad passed away, just after my mom's birthday, about three days after we got the diagnosis that my mom had ALS and she had already had a lot of symptoms. And I kept her in a bubble for a really long time. I would take her all over California in a wheelchair. I would take her in and out of places, carry her in, do all of those things. And in a way, didn't lean in to the ALS community who had reached out to us on several occasions because leaning in admitted that there was something that we couldn't control and that there was no cure for and that there were all of these things. And I was living with false hope, you know, taking her to everywhere that I could to try some new thing or technique or, you know, types of things like that. Um, before, when I would have a challenging day with my mom, I wondered why. And I wondered why her? And I had all these questions, but I didn't have anybody else to ask about their experience. And I didn't have anybody else to say, you're not alone because I was avoiding it. But now leaning into you guys in the ALS Association, I feel like we're not alone. And I feel like there are more resources out there and more conversations that need to be had that we want to be a part of. So I'm leaning in now more to the community starting with you guys uh, the most, just to get a better understanding of what's available, what she needs, what other people's experiences are, how that can benefit us, and then also share how our experiences hopefully can benefit somebody else. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the you were, were able to find community uh, that is there to kind of support and, and make you know kind of be there steps along the way. What are some ways that you think, having been down, you know, I think you said you've been the primary caregiver for eight months. How can community, whether that's the the the, the broader ALS community or or an individual's own personal local community or their network, uh, what can those communities do to help support caregivers? Yeah, there's a lot, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, which I thought was interesting. My mom, after we got the diagnosis of my mom's ALS and my father passed away, I immediately moved my mom to Los Angeles and she lived with me. So I was caregiving for her at that time, but we had help. We had nursing, you know, coming to the house. But at that time, I didn't, I didn't really look for ALS centric nursing or caregivers that were really versed in ALS. We looked for people that could help with the early on symptoms that she was having. So I would, you know, one thing that I learned uh, recently too with Claire over at Team Gleason, who's become a great friend and, and support as well, was that when I'm looking to these things for my mom, really look at people who have an understanding of ALS. A thing that I'd been so frustrated with before was always having to explain her condition to everybody and people saying things like, so you can't walk? And I was like, we just had this conversation and that's hurtful to her. No, she, she can't walk. So really finding community around you and support that are versed in this condition. This condition, you know, I've worked with a lot of charities globally and this condition is unlike nothing I'd ever seen or experienced before. And I have realized that everybody's case and experience is very different within this community. So looking towards you know, leaning into your local ALS chapters, you know, the ALS Association chapters and really leaning on those resources and finding people that understand because I think understanding leads to compassion and then the way you feel when you're asking somebody a question and you automatically go into the conversation feeling like they understand her condition, they understand our situation. Listening to some of your other podcasts, I, you know, in my mind, I've always you know, talked about what was happening with my mom and then seeing her with family and everyone else extended out of just she and I, I realized that it's happening to our entire family. And you want to feel like somebody understands you as the entire family and, and supports you. So I would look for people that understand ALS and not be afraid to ask questions. I mean, Tanya Peterson, that's here. I, and Morgan, I have asked so many, and, and even you, when you and I were talking, <laughs> the amount of questions I ask because I don't know. Right. And I'm learning as I go along and this, the power that comes from asking and learning in this, you know, the ultimate thing is the person that we're caring for. Absolutely. But when you ask and you're equipped with the tools that you guys have given me and us, I'm sure as anybody watching this, we become more valuable to the person we're caring for, but then ultimately we become more valuable to ourselves and easier on ourselves as well, which I think is an incredible gift. And sometimes, we, you know, when when you're dealing with something new, just speaking for myself, I often don't know what question even to ask. And I don't know what's around the next corner and what questions I'm going to need to ask six weeks from now, six months from now. So yeah. finding that community who maybe has been there and can answer the question and can and kind of help you anticipate what questions are coming up down the road, that, that can be really empowering. Yeah, definitely. I think that not knowing is often so scary. And when you know or have a little bit of 
lead or guidance, which you guys have afforded us, thank you, makes it easier and makes the challenge just a little less difficult. And then ultimately, when you look at it as a whole that way, it makes everything easier, you know? Yeah. Well, Ken, I really appreciate your time today and sharing your story and your experiences as a caregiver. I'm sure it's going to really resonate with a lot of our listeners. So really appreciate your time and, and energy today. Thank you so much. Thank you to the ALS Association, Jeremy, to you, to Morgan, to everybody, and um, all my love and prayers for everybody out there. Well, clearly there is a lot that can be done to further support family caregivers. And to get a better sense of some of the ways that advocates are fighting to support caregivers, I recently sat down with Nancy Lamont, Executive Vice President and Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer at AARP and a member of the ALS Association's Board of Trustees. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for being with us this week. Of course, delighted to be with you. Excited to have you on and so much to talk about. But for starters, can you just introduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about your experience as a caregiver? Sure. My experience as a caregiver has come really in three different waves in my life. First, I was uh, helped my mother as she cared for my father when he was ill. And I always describe that as kind of being a gut check caregiver. Um, my job was to kind of let her test her ideas of what she needed to do to help my dad and, and be there for what she needed. He passed away. And then I became, years later, a caregiver for my mother and had the experience so many caregivers have of trying to do that from a distance. She lived in New Jersey. I lived in Washington, D.C., and really had to deal with the challenges that everybody has but also to do it over the miles. And right. then, and probably most relevant to our time together here, around um, uh, eight years ago, my husband was diagnosed with ALS. And we made the decision from the very beginning that he would be cared for at home and that my sons and I, coupled with some wonderful home care workers over the years, took care of him. And he died around two years ago. I refer to that experience as extreme caregiving. That's where you're a caregiver, basically 24 hours a day and doing almost everything. So that's been my kind of practical experience as a caregiver. And then by day, my job introduces me to federal and state public policies that relate to caregivers. I run the advocacy operation for AARP. So I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to work on many of these issues in the legislative arena, but all of that is informed by so many personal experiences. Yeah, and I want to get into some of those public policy fights that are ongoing and, and on the horizon. Uh, but before we get to the solution, I want to talk about the problem that we're trying to address. So from your experience, both as a caregiver and as someone who interacts with caregivers by day, what are some of the major challenges that you have seen that family caregivers face on a day-to-day -day basis? When I look at them, they kind of fall into three major areas. The, the first would be the need for basic information and training. And that can be anywhere from how to understand the care needs of the person you're taking care of, how to get specific support and training for medical or nursing tasks, how to know about local resources and support, and how to 
deal with all of the legal and financial issues, learning the ins and outs of health insurance and uh, Medicare can be an almost full-time job. And so, you know, there are a whole set of things caregivers have to learn very quickly and be able to do. The second area is, of course, financial. We know from our work at AARP that around 80% of all family caregivers spend their own money on care-related expenses and sometimes averaging around $7,000 a year. So we know that one other part of, of family caregiving is really the financial needs that have to be augmented as you go about your day-to-day helping. And then the third is is time. For people who work, and 60% of 44 million family caregivers are working full-time or part-time, you need to be able to have time away from job, your job, maybe some flexibility to do that. And uh, the other side of time is how do you how do you find time for yourself while you're doing this? How can you get some respite care? How can you manage everything without yourself ending up as a patient. You know, the ALS Association's focus program did a survey of caregivers, and it's fascinating to hear how so many of the challenges that you're laying out echo in the responses that they gleaned from the caregivers who participated. We can share links to those results in our show notes. Uh, Nancy, AARP has been a leading champion of the Credit for Caring Act. Can you talk to us a little bit about that bill, what it would do, and how it would help support family caregivers? Credit for caring, and I should say the ALS Association uh, has been a sponsor along with 75 other groups, many of them patient groups, many of them veterans groups, um, and others have supported the Credit for Caring Act. As I mentioned a minute ago, AARP research shows that a very substantial number of family caregivers have out-of-pocket expenses, and we were trying to find a way working with Republicans and Democrats in both the Senate and the House to provide a tax credit that would help offset some of those expenses, putting money back in caregivers' pockets. Um, We were successful at getting it in the Ways and Means Committee bill. That was the first step of this arduous process everybody's reading about on the Build Back Better legislation. Sure. We were able to get it in that, but it didn't make it to the to the final cut. We're going to continue our work on this. We think it's important for two reasons. One is family caregivers need some help. They need some financial support, help to fray some of those day-to-day costs. We think this is an efficient way to do it through the tax code, through a tax credit. And second, we think it's very important that family caregivers be recognized as a key part of the healthcare delivery system. We are now relying on family caregivers to provide a huge amount of care for our loved ones. And it's important that they be part of that care system. One thing I also wanted to mention, an additional item, on paying for caregiving and care expenses. Many people do not know that the tax code has a provision for deducting your medical expenses. So anything in excess of 7.5% of gross income can be deducted. By no means does this cover all the expenses, but it does help a little bit along the way. 
And certainly a challenge that is going to grow as the, the population continues to age. Nancy, credit for caring sounds like a necessary but perhaps not sufficient solution. What are some of the other public policy fights that are on the horizon as we kind of come into a close of 2021 and move into 2022? What are the next battles that that you see people needing to um, get excited about? Well, as you say, we're, we're going to continue to work on credit for caring, but we have to work on other measures that are going to help family caregivers and those who have long-term care expenses. One thing, and it sounds pretty simple, but it's not, is to increase the awareness of family caregivers to make sure that caregivers are recognized, valued, and have access to the services and support they need. This has happened a bit over the last six or seven years. We've been working, AARP has been working in every state. Every state has passed some kind of legislation helping family caregivers, and there have been about 500 bills. Some of them are respite care, some clarify guardianship, some provide a caregiving tax credit at the state level, but we're going to have to continue to increase awareness of family caregivers. Second thing is we need to engage family caregivers as partners with providers in the healthcare and the long-term care system. More and more care is being delivered at home. More and more care is being delivered by family caregivers. They need to be recognized by CMS, by health insurers, as being an important part of the delivery system. I'll give you one example. We worked early on on telehealth. And in some of the regulations on telehealth, you couldn't have a third party. It had to be the medical provider on one end and the patient on the other. We were able to get arrangements so that there could be a third person on, that could be the family caregiver who may not live with the person being being treated. These kinds of accommodations are going to be very important. Another area is we have to increase access to services and supports. There's no one size fits all. We know there are measures now on assistive technology. Again, a renewal of telehealth have to continue to work on that. We need to increase financial and workplace protections giving people the opportunity to have uh, flexibility in their job. This has come into focus in COVID when uh, many more people had to care for folks along the way. So these are just some of the ways that, that we're continuing to work with policymakers to really recognize caregivers as they recognize patients. It strikes me how vast the web is of institutions and, and organizations that are affected when somebody becomes a caregiver for someone in the family. You mentioned employers having flexibility, the implications on telehealth. We've been talking about public policy implications that can em enhance the experience of a caregiver. W what about the, the community? What are some things that people in a caregiver's community can do to support them? Well, I, I'm always hesitant to give caregivers one more thing to do uh, because <laughs> fair enough, are, fair uh, enough. we are, they are the busiest people on the face of the earth. But in order to see the kinds of public policy help that we're going to need, family caregivers are going to have to become more active. We've found in states across the country, we've been able to mobilize grassroots 
activists at the state and local level, been able to get family caregivers to talk to their elected officials about the need for respite care, the need for new telehealth provisions, the need for home and community-based services. None of these changes are going to come on their own. And to get policies like those I've mentioned, like paid leave, like tax credits for caregivers, policymakers must hear from their constituents from patient groups and other local organizations. And again, on the individual level, everyone's needs are different, but also something simple can be helpful. If you can get someone to help you with running an errand or doing some housework, helping with meals and groceries, I think, you know, people in the community want to reach out. Sometimes they just don't know how to do that. Yeah, and we can certainly share some resources in the show notes, both in terms of respite care and, of course, opportunities to engage in activism and and public policy advocacy. Uh, Nancy, before I let you go back to the busy work that you've been uh, describing for us, any closing thoughts uh, around ways that we can support caregivers? Really, we have to find ways both in community and in the public policy arena, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, to help in those three areas that I mentioned earlier, information and education. What do people need to be effective caregivers? In the area of kind of a little financial support, we need to find ways to pass things like credit for caring, let people know about the medical deduction. And then importantly, we have to find avenues for real coverage of long-term care needs in this country. We have not been able to do that. So much of health legislation is focused on acute care, importantly, preventive care, importantly, but we now know that long-term care is a need of so many, so many older Americans and others who are afflicted with diseases like ALS um, at at all ages. So there's still a lot to do, but again, if we can... uh, get people to uh, raise their voice and get engaged from time to time, we'll make some real headway. And I should say, we've been so pleased, putting on my my AARP hat, we've been so pleased to be able to work with the ALS Association on issues that are important to people who have ALS. And I know that experience firsthand, and it makes me an even stronger advocate on behalf of family caregivers, on behalf of hospice, and on behalf of um, uh, efforts with the Food and Drug Administration and NIH in particular. So thank, thanks so much for uh, taking a little time with me today. No, the, the pleasure is all mine and ours. Uh, it truly is a tremendous partnership between the ALS Association and AARP. Uh, Nancy, we really appreciate your time today. Sure. Happy to be here. I want to thank my guests this week, Ken Pavis and Nancy Lamond. Be sure to check out the show notes for resources on supporting caregivers and opportunities to participate in the current ALS focus survey. And if you missed it, check out our earlier discussion on caregiving Family Caregivers Month. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, subscribe, rate, and review us. It is a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Bye.